Welcome to Alex and Annie, the real women of vacation rentals. With more than 35 years combined industry experience, Alex Husner and Annie Holcomb have teamed up to connect the dots between inspiration and opportunity, seeking to find the one story, idea, strategy, or decision that led to their guest's big aha moment. Join them as they highlight the real stories behind the people and brands that have built vacation rentals into the $100 billion industry it is today. And now it's time to get real and have some fun with your hosts, Alex and Annie. Welcome to Alex and Annie, the real women of vacation rentals. I'm Alex. And I'm Annie. And we're joined today with Greg Fisher from TripShock. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Very excited to have you here today. So Greg, you've been just a, a role model and a, a friend and a mentor to me for the last several years and have learned so much from you and just watching your growth with TripShock has been so exciting. Uh, but for our audience that isn't familiar with you or with the company, can you just tell us a little bit about what you've done and what your history in the industry has been? Sure. So TripShock is a online tour and activity marketplace. We're an OTA. And we cover uh, most regions in the Southeast. We partner with activity attractions, uh, rental, you know, uh, boat rental companies, and we resell their products for a commission. So it's like, you know, similar to Expedia's model. Uh, we've been around for, this is our 14th season, 14th or 15th season. I'm, I'm losing track here. I started the company um, uh, really young didn't know really what I was doing. I knew that there was kind of a, a need in the market of consolidating uh, amenities and then reselling them in a one-stop shop type um, uh, booking uh, system or booking place. So I uh, started there in Destin, Florida, actually, and we developed it uh, soon to Panama City Beach and Gulf Shores. Uh, obviously, we expanded it to Myrtle Beach. I got to that's where I met uh, Alex. And then, you know, now we're just kind of taking over the South, um, you know, going into new markets that we feel are good fits. A lot of them are our vacation rental based markets because we see like uh, the, the family activities seem to be just, just really popular. Uh, people are really looking for outdoor um, excursions. So that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, for me, uh, I, I studied tourism at University of Central Florida. Um, and I literally went from college to a front desk job to trip shock, like really fast. And in fact, like <laughs> that short time working in hotels, that's how I figured out, um, you know, the model for trip shock and started massaging it because people were coming to the front desk asking for ideas for tours and activities. And I said, okay, well, there's gotta be a better way to, um, you know, get these people to these activities, but also, you know, my staff should be able to make a little extra for referring these because, you know, they have, they have choices. So if there is a choice that gave them an extra couple of dollars and there was a better way to keep track of it, then that's when, you know, I started thinking, and then I partnered with a, a local businesswoman and we started a trip shock. Uh, so the rest is kind of history from there. It's so exciting. So I, you know, we know each other through each other, or, you know, through other people, and obviously Alex, but been in the panhandle um, since the '90s, and I worked at front desk and, and marketing for different resorts. And there was always a struggle: is the different attractions and trying to kind of organize them into a good fashion. And I remember when you first came out with it, I was like, I always say that everybody has a million dollar idea in their head. 
Um, it just got to get it out there. And I just thought it was brilliant. And to watch what you've done with it and where you've taken it. And, and again, Alex and I have noticed that there's all these really great um, ideas and entrepreneurs and technology advancements that have come out of the panhandle. Um, so again, you're just another, it's another bright spot for our, our destination. And I like, I love what you've done with it. So kudos to you for, for putting it out there. I think it was something that needed to be done. And I'd love to know um, it, there had to be some challenges early on, because again, you said you were young and you were trying to work with a piece of the industry that maybe wasn't as organized and refined in their communications and technology. So how do you, how do you think that you were able to get that all organized and and make it what it is today? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, basically the first like four or five years went extremely slow because I'm young and my business partner at the time wasn't very involved. So um, it was just kind of one business at a time. And sometimes I had to do things differently, such as sometimes I had to buy the tickets in advance because I didn't trust me on a credit relationship. Um, sometimes I had to pay weekly or even every couple of days I had to pay out, you know, our partners for the trips that we booked. So it was all about, you know, just coming in the middle with their, their concerns and, and getting them on because once that, that other tour operator sees uh, their competitor on my site, then they're like, okay, you know, I want to be part of this too. So though, like I said, the first four or five years is really tough trying to develop and show that, you know, I'm a trustworthy business person and uh, I'm going to do the right thing. Cause you know, there's times where, you know, I'm young and I'm collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars and these people are trusting me that I'm going to pay that out because we all know the OTA game. There are some bad players. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one bad player, Annie, in our neck of the woods. Right, right, that, yep. <laughs> yeah. um, that they took the money and they floated and they never paid people back. Right. So those OTAs, and there's a number of them that did that, really hurt my chances of really taking this thing, you know, you know, to the next level faster because I couldn't change my system easily. Um because my technology was built around that model. But, you know, as soon as I started building trust and people knew that they were going to get paid, you know, that I'm going to deliver on what I told them to, uh, it just sometimes like going the route of the, the nice and honest person comes out good in the end. You just have to stick, you know, stay true to that path. Right. Yeah. And I remember it always wins. I I feel. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Greg, I remember one of my favorite stories that you told us when you first came up to visit in Myrtle Beach and start working in this market. You said that when you were having challenges getting these fishing charters onto the platform, you would go and you would wait for them to come back from being out at sea and you would bring them coffee and like you would do these different things and you did it every day. Yeah. Yeah. And Thanks it's like, bringing- that's, that's, that's what build, it builds that trust, but it also, you know, those are the things that you have to do early on to get to scale that those are things that they definitely don't scale. You can't be doing that every day now, mm-hmm. but you know, the impact that that made early on it's it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. So what, what came first as you were building it? Because, you know, at 10 years, was it 10 years ago, probably? Uh, about 13 years, 2009. Wow. So technology just in general was nowhere close to where it is now, but what came first? I mean, did you build the website and then build the technology after, or did it kind of go hand in hand or it's, 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 it's 
amazing to me to think how you knew what to build on the technology side, since that didn't really, that didn't exist. I mean, there weren't platforms like that, or, you know, in our industry back at that time, you know, there were obviously were property management systems. They're not nearly as advanced as they are now, but I mean, you, you kind of got into that so early that that had to have been a challenge figuring out what your needs even were. Yeah. So you're going to laugh at this, but you know, <laughs> I worked in hotels so I had access to all the OTAs and their back ends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when I was <laughs> on my way out of the hotel, when I knew I was going to, you know, go work, you know, and start TripShock, on my way out, I went into all the extranets and I screenshotted every single one of them. Uh, <laughs> so I reverse engineered. And Mark. that's how that's how we built our, um, our extranet is basically by looking at what they have done. Now, I had to modify the crap out of it because... You know, hotels are different than tours, yeah. right? But yeah. I've I got I got the basic foundation. So, you know, I cheated a little bit, but I, I honestly, that's every business does a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And your company has been remote since day one, right? I mean, you don't actually have a, a, you have an office, but you don't have yeah call center staff. They're all remote. That's incredible too, because I mean, a remote business back in those days was kind of unheard of. So. How did you make that decision to go that route and know how to even get started? Well, I'd say like the first three years we were, we did have an office um, and I worked kind of in and out of the office. Uh, but in 2014, we com- went completely remote. Okay. So we knew how to handle the pandemic pretty well. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, it's, it's funny because um, so many people just couldn't believe that we could operate remote with a call center and they're like, well, how do you know that they're going to answer the phone and this and that? And I mean, when people work for a company, they, they truly want to impress their superiors. Like they want to perform, they want to move up, they want to make more money and they know they're not going to achieve that by cheating the system. And honestly, it's pretty easy. If someone's not doing their job, you're recording all the phone calls. So you can hear what's going on in the background or you can see what, you know, how many calls they answer, pick up a day. So it's it's easy to to track the metrics. So if they're going to, you know, do shady things or, or skip out there, it's going to be caught pretty quick. So how did, so from that, you obviously had to work on creating a guest experience, but you weren't interacting with the guests directly, right? It was more about on the phone and then getting the information to the front desk. Is that how that would play out? When it comes to making reservations? On well, just, I guess, the- yeah. So I guess, so, so I guess maybe explain to me how it all works. Cause I'm actually, I've never shopped it before. So I don't know exactly if someone calls trip shock or books on, how does that actually work? Is it just like an OTA where they don't yeah. actually speak to a person or they can speak to a person? They can speak to a person. In fact, that's the thing we do a little bit differently is we, we train salespeople. Mm-hmm. They, I know a lot of OTAs, they prefer to have a small call center and to push people to book online, I get it from like a, you know, a, a sky high view of mm-hmm. like a, a large, but for us, you know, I have two kids and when I go to book something, a lot of times, especially since the activity industry is a cottage industry and like well-built websites still, yeah, they, they're starting to get online booking and, and so forth, but the business owners themselves are not marketers or they don't have marketing departments. So you know, they're not displaying a lot of the information as well as it could be displayed, but they're selling great experiences. So I try to really push my staff to study every single product 
and be, you know, that salesperson that that activity provider might not be able to be because they're on the boat or they don't have time to update the website as much. So we're in a really good position because these families, these moms, they are looking for information that is not going to be easily found. And they're talking to someone who likely has been to the area that might have even been on that tour. And a lot of OTAs really can't provide that mm-hmm. personalized service. Uh, like right now, like our our team, our, our agents, they're on a, um, uh, a fam tour visiting different uh, activity companies locally here, and they might go a little outside, you know, outside here, but they're visiting actively, talking to the owner, seeing the setups and learning products firsthand. And I, and I, I think that's a missing ingredient in business these days is there we're selling marketing, but we're not selling sales. Yeah. When people are on the phones, I mean, you got them on the phone. Like you can not only sell them on the product they're looking for, but now you have an opportunity to upsell them. Where online, it's not as easily done because now, when, as soon as they talk to you, they hear the person, they feel comfortable. I, I just think the phone's an, an amazing tool that, like in 2022, I hope it gets put back into play a little bit because that's our secret ingredient. I think like 25% of our sales are by phone, significant in a world where you know, online bookings are so prominent. Yeah. It's a harder, it's harder to say no to a a person than it is the computer. But if you do need people to go out and experience (laughs) um, future activities, things, um, Alex and I are available for spa visits. We, we certainly would like to test. Yes, (laughs) exactly. We'll go ahead and rate them and then we'll tell our staff how great they are. (laughs) We're than happy to. No, it definitely, you're hundred percent right on that. And, you know, our business, we definitely have a very big, um, you know, section of business that books on the phone. I mean, we're still um, a heavy phone uh, reservation system and with so much online too, it just, what we do, there are a lot of questions, you know, and I think probably the same thing in your industry that that allows you to do the things that the other, you know, your bigger competitors might not be able to do at scale, but uh, I'm curious, do your agents, do they all live down in the panhandle? Oh, 50% of them do. Yeah. So how often do you take them to do these fam trips just whenever you get a new I'd say twice or... a year. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, and, and usually we focus on the most high volume tours we sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We start there and then we kind of branch branch off into other um you know, other markets that maybe might be newer or closer by. Obviously it's expensive to bring your staff all the way to Myrtle Beach. Right. We've done, we've taken some of our staff to Myrtle Beach before. So, yeah. um, Yeah. Well, with that, how do you, how do you replicate that knowledge and, um, you know, go into you scale your business into all these other markets because you guys have expanded tremendously from when you first started. It used to be just really, you know, in the southeast, right here along the Panhandle. But Myrtle Beach, I think you're you're doing New York now too, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Are you are you up there or in some of the cities or am I missing? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're in there yeah. and we're kind of tiptoeing in some of yeah. these places, testing the waters. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a huge challenge actually to train uh, your agents on thousands of products. So when we launch a new product, there is like sometimes training courses, depending on how in-depth the product is, but we definitely post every single product in a, in a Skype where they have an opportunity, uh, in, during the day while they have like breaks in between calls, or sometimes we just kind of put them on pause and allow them to check out the listing, uh, review it through the pictures, ask 
questions to our market managers about the product. So it's not just like we're adding products every day and and there's no uh, you know notification of them. Like there's there's a process of them can kind of put it into circulation. It's not the perfect process, but compared to other OTAs where probably they don't have any process, um, it's I think it's the best thing. And hopefully they can get to these locations because some of our agents love to travel. And we highly encourage them to go to markets that we have product in. And sometimes we do, you know, credits or subsidies uh, on their trips if they, you know, detour and check out some of the activities. Yeah, because sometimes it's more just about learning the destination than it is about learning the actual attraction or for us the accommodations. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, those are the questions that you're gonna that you're gonna get. I mean, how close is it to this, or how easy is it to get around? If I'm gonna be here first, that it takes a little bit more high touch than just looking at a map to answer those questions. But you know, when you and I first met, Greg, we were going in opposite directions. That you were trying to get into Myrtle Beach, and we were trying to get into the Panhandle. And I think that's how we connected on LinkedIn. We just saw posts that each of us was making. But one of the challenges that I know that we've had, and I think you have too, is that when you go into a new market, it's also about finding that balance of you need to get the interest from the guests, you need to pay for the marketing, but not having a lot of supply. I mean, you're going you're gonna to be in the red for a while until you can get that to turn around. But what, what market has been maybe most successful new market that you've entered into? So in the past five years, the most successful new market has been Hilton Head. Really interesting. And uh, the reason why Hilton Head has been so successful is because it's all it's all based on the operator. Mm-hmm. And when we go into a market, we try to find what we call an anchor partner. Mm-hmm. An anchor yeah. partner usually really big, they have multiple products, they have multiple businesses, and all they care about is market share. They just want to take over that market, they want as much Many or as many bookings that they could possibly get. They want to have all the exposure on every OTA. And they want to be number one placement. Um, they're at they're past that point where commission. They're thinking about commission. They're just thinking about volume. Yeah. So we have a couple partners like that in Hilton Head, and when you have a partner like that, and they really understand the importance of a partnership with an OTA, then you're not fighting back and forth with. Um, you know, rates and Google ads and all this other stuff, you can just get the business. Right. And yeah. there's other markets where we, we partner with them. And then we have a laundry list of stipulations. You know, we don't want to see you on, on Google. We don't want to see you here. Um, only book us on Sunday and Saturday at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. come on now. Like you got to op- release the, the purse strings a little bit for us. Uh, but that's that's I think what makes a good market is when the partners really want to partner with you just as much as you want to partner with them. Sometimes it's it's one-sided and those relationships usually don't end well. Do you have any markets that you've gone into that you just got in and you were like, oh gosh, you know, I wish we hadn't, or uh, you know, that it just fell flat, or maybe it took you a lot longer to get established? Yeah. Um Biloxi, Mississippi was well. We currently are still there. We have a few products. Uh, and I'll tell you the issue with Biloxi. So Biloxi um, doesn't have a whole lot of product. So the operators that are there kind of have a monopoly on each category they, right. they sell. In. So that is, first of all, that's the struggle. So we did partner with some and they did exactly what I told you. They only gave us like Saturday at four o'clock, Sunday at this time. And they didn't truly understand what like a partnership 
meant. And that hurt the, you know, hurt the ability for us to grow in those markets because we're having to battle through the red tape of each partner. And every single one we sign up seemed to be the same situation. And these are Biloxi, Mississippi is not a market that is accustomed to OTAs. They are a casino market. They're very weekend heavy. The tour and activity companies there have been there for 30, 40 years. So innovate, innovating their marketing is not necessarily something top of mind for them. But when you go to a market with like Hilton Head and they have some young entrepreneurs, they understand online marketing, uh, they're growing leaps and bounds, and they have just a very innovative approach to things like that's what we like to find. And, and I'll tell you, mark, markets are defined by people like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can yeah. find good people to start with, because then we sign them up. And what happens is it's like this domino effect. All of their competitors, they want in because the anchor product's in. Yeah, if there's a monkey see monkey do, but when you don't get the anchor product in and you're getting all the out, outliers in, it's kind of tough because the outliers usually are really small, red tape. They don't understand stand it well. So yeah, and you, you, it's, can't, it's, you can't invest money in your marketing strategy or even the time to educate your sales agents if you're only having small gaps of inventory that you can book. I mean, that's that's the challenge for sure. It's very similar to vacation rentals. Like yeah, Alex, I'm sure yeah. you you feel the same. Like you want to go into a market and get the biggest and get yeah. all the inventory. You don't want to deal with all the red tape on marketing and advertising. Like I can't tell you how many times we get into a market, we sign a contract, and then a week later, they send us all these demands on how they want their products to be displayed on the site, what position they want to be, their ad, they don't want ads being, they don't want to compete, even though like some like ads we do are very destination specific, like Dolphin Cruises in Destin, Florida. Well, you can't capitalize on that word. That's just the, those are just words that everyone can use. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't want you yeah. there because they yeah. feel like you're increasing the cost yeah. and taking market share from them, even though there's like seven under advertisers. So right. like the, these crazy demands make it difficult for us to move forward in these markets. So I, you know, once we start seeing that, it's like kind of something triggers in us, like maybe we should hold off or wait until we find that right partner. And they're out there. There's a lot, there's a lot, we have a lot of great ones, but um, you know, you learn. Yeah, absolutely. Who would you say is your biggest uh, competitor? I mean, I know you can book attractions on TripAdvisor, but who else is out there that you compete against? TripAdvisor is our biggest competitor. I know we're like small potatoes compared to them, but as far as like the markets we're in, they're the only one that's really holding any weight against us. They're they're big, but they're they don't go very long tail in their products. So they have like some of the bigger commercial stuff, like the attractions and like the bigger um, boating tours. But when they don't have like the jet ski rentals, pontoons, like the kayak tours in the swamps, like I call that like more long tail product. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they need to have boots on the ground in order to sign those companies up. Right. Yeah. So that's where we kind of will outdo them, but they're going to sell a lot more attraction tickets because their, their attraction listings are tied to the TripAdvisor profile. So have a really great, you know, lead generation program for, for bookings, which we, you know, we're not going to compete against TripAdvisor. And it's right. Just- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So beyond TripShock, you've got a lot of other types of businesses and um, things that you're involved in. And one one of those is a podcast, (laughs) right? (laughs) So the Awkward Water Sport Guys podcast, tell us a little bit about how that got started. And from that, you know, what you've taken and and how you've used that to network to come back and grow TripShock. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So the podcast, I started with one of our uh, tour partners, uh, Kevin O'Neill from Destiny Water Adventures. He's based in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. So we sat down uh, and had lunch one day. Kevin just called me and and wanted to you know chat about marketing. And every now and then I'll I'll get with some of our partners and just have lunch. And we just talked about how there wasn't a like a voice for the water sport industry or just the boat rental industry, as benign as boat rentals are you should have like some type of influencer or some type of community that all these businesses can come and talk about their problems together. Because, you know, as easy as it might sound, there's a lot of regulations sur- surrounding boating and, right. and renting oh, yeah. boats. Yeah. And yeah. so we said, Hey, well, why don't we start a podcast? Cause podcasts were starting to become pretty big during the pandemic for, for whatever reason. So uh, we, we, you know, got together, we started, uh, you know, talking about different issues uh, Kevin is uh, a lot different than I am. He's very colorful. Um, he swears and he has big opinions. And uh, and I'm kind of like the uh, you know the quiet you know think it through type person. So, <laughs> um, but we have like so, so how people tell me it is like Kevin's Howard Stern and I am his his assistant, Robin. I'm there. I'm, yeah. I, you know, I, I, every now and then I can be, I can, you know, be a Howard Stern, but mostly right. it's Kevin. Um, yeah. But we have a really good time together. Uh, Kevin will just do really crazy things, but he's really smart. Like yeah. bottom line, like yeah. Kevin, he, he comes off as silly on the show. Um, but at the same time, we want to make it, make it fun. We want to make it colorful. You know, we, people are taking time out of their day to listen to us. So we want to make it interesting. So, and we talk about a myriad of topics. Uh, we bring, you know, Alex was on the show. We talked about, you know, vacation rentals, um, but we're trying to, to definitely mix it up a bit. In fact, we, uh, we had uh, James Garrettson. He was on the, the Tiger King. If you guys yes. know the Netflix yes. Tiger King, <laughs> he was, he's the jet, the jet ski guy. Um so, in, in fact, he owns a water sport company in and Marathon, Florida. So it was it was kind of ironic that uh, that that was the case. But uh, so yeah, we really mix it up. But at the end of the day, um, it's really important to our industry to have you know just conversations. Yeah. And we talk about safety. We talk about regulations. We talk about marketing. Um, we bring on guests uh, to talk about just being an, being an entrepreneur. Kevin and I just will talk about, you know, random things going on in our life, but people tell us how, you know, they listen to us and how much it means to them that, you know, they're working every day, day in and day out. No one really understands what they go through running boats, the stress of Mm -hmm. running to people, you know, the stress of, uh, you know, saying no to somebody that, which could, you know, turn turn into like a discrimination lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, You know, these are the things that are just, that we think about and there's not like a body or not, not, you know, a, a place where you can just hang your hat at, you know, and turn on and just say, okay, these guys are like us. They're yeah. just like me. And we don't get a hell of a lot of downloads, maybe, you know, hundred, 150 downloads. So it's, it's more of those, it's a very niche show. Cause there's not 
thousands of boat rental operators, you know, in the country, there's hundreds. So, but we're happy where we're at. And uh, it, it brought us to actually create a, con- we created a conference last year Yeah, and we had yeah. about a hundred people come to the conference and we did, um, you know, round tables and things like that. So, you know, if you're, no matter what you do, if it's vacation rentals or if it's boat rentals, uh, there's probably some people just like you thinking the same things and looking for an outlet to share, you know, their, their story. And right. we created that. We even have a Facebook group with about 500 people and where we able to talk about, ask questions and, you know, sell equipment and just kind of bring, bring the industry together. Yeah, no, I think you guys have done a phenomenal job with it. And you know, the advice Annie and I were given when we started ours was you want your show to be first entertaining and second informational. And that's certainly how your show is too. And mm-hmm. I'm not in water sports, but I listen to all all your episodes because I always learn something from it. And it is funny. I mean, Kevin is so off the wall different than you are, but the two of you complement each other really well. And it's, I mean, it is definitely entertaining. The Tiger King one was <laughs> insane, but maybe any, we need to get Carol Baskins. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That guy doesn't like, doesn't like Carol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no, I think, I think it's been awesome seeing you do that. And actually you said to me a year or two ago, when you started yours, you're like, you know, you ought to have a podcast too. And I remember saying, no, I don't think so. Like, I don't want to not have the time and I wouldn't know how to do it. I wouldn't know where to start, but you know, somehow Annie came into my life and then we figured it out. I'm to blame. Um, it's, I'm glad that we did because it, it's, we enjoy it for the same reasons that you and Kevin do that. It's great to have these conversations because they are so important. And I, we've learned so much through doing this that we take back into our own businesses and our own lives. And it just en- enriches you and hopefully enriches uh, the people that listen as well. But um, I think the, the conference side of things is really interesting too. I mean, a hundred people at that event you had last year, that's a, that's a good size conference. You know, you guys, mm-hmm. you guys did a great job with that, but even really, if we really make exciting. no money on the podcast and we've actually had a couple of sponsorships, but even if we had zero sponsorships, I've been completely fulfilled because all the people we bring on the show, the people I get to meet, it forces me to meet new people right? we have new yeah. guests all the time. Yeah. Um, some of them are friends or, or colleagues or clients, but a lot of times it's people that I don't really know too well. And it's opened up a lot of doors for, um, you know, trip shock. We've actually had a lot of uh, people work with trip shock because of the podcast. Yeah. So man, it's, it's been really great. I mean, uh, I, I does take, you know, a few hours out of my week, but it's well worth it. Yeah, totally yeah, it goes back to something that you said to Alex and I the first couple of times we talked that your network is your net worth. And the bigger your network is, the more your net worth can, you know, opportunity. So grow. It just, it just <laughs> you know, we, for us, Alex and I, we've been given opportunities to one to meet people, but to speak with people that probably never would have taken our phone call, email, or even spoken to us at a conference. And now people reaching out to us and giving us opportunities to be part of other conferences. And it's just, it, it is, it's a great great thing. And if you are enjoying it, that's, that's wonderful. And so you're giving a voice to an industry that didn't feel like they had a voice. It was perfectly timed. Yeah. I think you guys have always been both trip shock and, and you personally have been an early adopter of things. And that really pays off. You know, Kevin said in one of your latest episodes that he said, there's a difference between an owner and a founder. And, you know, Greg is a founder because I mean, you've been in all sides of the business, you get your hands dirty, you do the things that don't scale, you do the things before other people will do them. And that, you know, that makes a huge difference. So um, it's like I said earlier, it's been exciting to watch the growth of, of, 
trip shock and you and the podcast. And now there's one other topic we want to cover, which this is something that uh, I've just been watching from afar and amazed, but I don't totally understand it. I don't think Annie does either, but um, you are really big into web three and NFTs and blockchain. And we would just love to hear your take on what you think the future is going to be with that and how it affects travel. And, but before we get there, if you can just give a NFT 101 for our audience. <laughs> the basic. In layman's terms. The basics. The, the dummies okay. version. <laughs> yeah. NFTs for dummies, please. All right. So let's let's do this. So NFT. At first, I just thought you were posting pictures of fish on Instagram. So <laughs> <laughs> to put that up there. Like, I don't yeah. Understand well, we'll get, actually, do you see the fish on my hat? <laughs> oh, That's yeah. my fish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So. I don't, you don't even want to see my office. Um, it's full. That's one behind you, right? I mean, that looks no, that, no, that, that's a painting. I have oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. I turn my camera, you're going to laugh at me, but so maybe <laughs> wait, we'll save that for last. Okay. So <laughs> NF, NFT uh, stands for non fungible token, basically saying that a token that can't be duplicated. So when you purchase an, an NFT, this is a, a one and only piece of uh, a digital data or digital art, depending on what context of the NFT we're talking. And these, uh, anytime that they are transferred or traded, like that is the one, one true, they have provenance. So uh, NFT gets kind of uh, skewed because it can mean multiple things. So NFT is really just a unit of data stored on the blockchain, which is a digital ledger. So uh, digital art, like JPEGs, like they can be an NFT, um, a contract or a document can be an NFT, uh, a video can be an NFT. Uh, so, you know, it can be multiple different things. Now, when you hear NFT in the news, most of it is has to do with um, either music or digital art or pictures. Like you probably have seen the monkeys, board apes, they're, yeah. you know, they're selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, you can see where like most of the NFT laying is, is because of uh, digital art. That's kind of like what I do as a hobby is I buy and, and sell and trade and collect digital art. And the reason why it's big now and not five years ago is because now with the blockchain, you can actually denote ownership of that piece of digital art where without the blockchain, I mean, we're just copying, pasting and sending and no one really knows who owns what. And the question you're probably going to ask me is how does a piece of digital art get value? How does an NFT get value? Right. Like why is a picture of a monkey worth $300,000? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's no different than physical art. So let's say that your friend creates a beautiful painting and goes to, and this painting is really should be worth a million dollars, but they're at the county fair and people are walking by and saying, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I only will give you a hundred dollars for it. So just imagine if Oprah Winfrey comes though, through the county fair and sees it and says, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to give you a half million dollars for it. She puts it into her personal art collection. That artist is now famous Everything that they paint from now on is going to be worth a million dollars. The same how, thing happens. So let me say, because this is where I'm confused. So on digital, someone puts it up on the internet that it becomes like it's out there and anybody can grab it. So how do, you lock, how do you lock it so I don't go and take a screenshot or, 
it just feels like anybody could get this. That's why I'm so confused. Yeah. About this. So, oh, well, let's ask you this. What if I went to, uh, where's the Mona Lisa? What museum is in, somewhere in Italy, the right? Louvre. I don't know. Yeah, the Louvre. Yeah, so what if I go and take a picture of the Mona Lisa and I put it on my Facebook or, or I print it out, make a print of it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I can make it look just like the original painting if I had an artist, you know, you know, put some coat on it, whatever, but it's still not mine, right? Like the Mona Lisa is the Mona Lisa's. And it's the right. same thing with digital art. I can copy and paste it, but I don't have provenance to it. I don't own that piece of digital art. The owner is going to be the one that's on the blockchain that's that's confirmed with their wallet address. But how so can I can somebody, take why, why couldn't somebody still just screenshot it? Because I mean if it's is oh, it, they, well, they definitely can. Yeah. But if let's say I screenshotted it, try say I tried to sell it, I couldn't do that because that the buyer would be like, well, this is not a blockchain. This is not, you know, through through the official collection. Okay. Also, that person has no IP rights to that art too. Like you get most uh NFT art, you get IP rights to it. So if I screenshotted it and let's try to, you know, allow a business to use it for a commercial. Well, I couldn't do that because I don't own the rights to it. You have to go to the true owner, which is validated uh, on the blockchain. So the the way that these NFTs get popularity is if a celebrity actually buys them. Is that the only way? Um, not no, not the other way. But it's for some of them, yes. Like you know, Jimmy Fallon bought Bored Apes, Paris Hilton bought it, and you know. Justin Bieber, they're all buying these certain collections and driving the price up. It's somewhat speculative, but they also get value from their utility they offer. So uh, utility could be IP rights. Utility can be um, like getting a dividend or or staking the NFT, which is like putting it into a, uh, a safe place and getting rewards out of it. Uh, it can be access to events like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. He is doing an event. And if you uh, redeem one of his NFTs, you get a ticket to one of his event. And some of his uh, older Genesis NFTs, if you hold one of them, you get free access to all of his events. I mean, you got to pay thousands of dollars for it, but they're utilizing their NFT uh, as a way to get access to them. And you guys just did so, that at Arrival, right? When you were at that conference that for your session, the people that were there, they could get a, a TripShock NFT. So we created an arrival NFT and if you went to our session, you got the arrival NFT and basically it's a proof of attendance. So people that went, got the NFT, and now I can actually look up on the blockchain and pull up all these addresses and own that NFT. And I'm like, okay, well, I could send something to their wallet next year, like like a, hey, uh, here's a $100 gift card to this restaurant because you were at you know the last... Uh, event and I have you know you're there's conf you confirmed there at the event because you know you received the NFT through the blockchain. That's kind of a bad example, but you can kind of see where you can do different once they own that NFT, you now know that you know for sure that they they prove themselves that they were there because you know you can't duplicate it. It's non-fungible. You can't copy and paste it. Um, and they can't give it to somebody and fake it. So they all got different ones basically. Oh, they all got this. We had it was actually an an addition NFT. So okay. it, there was the same one, but it's um, 
but it's still like the same uh, collection. Does oh, that so mean that like art galleries are going to be like on your phone in the future? So when someone goes to your house, let me show you my, my NFT <laughs> yeah. collection. Don't look at my walls. Just look at my phone. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I can't because it's not it's not something that you it's not a tangible object, right? It's it's. I mean, I know I've seen some that you can buy and you can trade it. Like you were talking about Gary Vanderchuk mm-hmm. stuff. Like you can trade it in for. I think Will did one with somebody that you get a sweatshirt or a hat or something yeah. along those lines. But but these these NFTs essentially are just like they're out there in the ether. That's a digital on your phone art like gallery, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it has a lot to do with the artist. <laughs> it has a lot to do. It's with- exactly what you thought, Annie. <laughs> And the the value of the NFT is is the same thing with almost anything else. Like the brand of the NFT has a lot to do with the value. Like if we had two cars right next to each other and one had a Mercedes sticker and the other one had a Kia sticker, there's going to be a $30,000 difference in that car. And the same thing with NFT projects. If you see uh, a, a monkey NFT project with the board ape, or the Yuga Lab brand, which is the company that founded that company or founded that collection. Then you have another one that looks similar with, you know, the Kia, you know, equivalent on that. There's going to be a different in price because these NFT collections are building brands around it. They're bringing in celebrities. They're creating entertainment value. Uh, the Board Apes did a um, a drop of their governance token, where basically they just created a cryptocurrency. They dropped it to their uh, holders. And the average holder got like $50,000 from it. I guess so. where it's just, it's hard to understand the assignment of value. I mean, with the Mercedes and a Kia, I mean, the difference is is tangible that it's a completely different built car. So, I mean, you can, it's not just somebody saying, oh, that one's worth this and that one's worth this. Yeah. And then that people take that as face value. And even with art, I mean, there's a difference between artists, between, you know, what they're painting and their skill set and who they are as an artist. They didn't just start from day one and somebody said, oh, you're good and you're not good. You know, there, there's, it's, that's what's kind of hard for me to comprehend, I guess. Okay. So we're completely confused. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then my, my, uh, my, my standing desk just decided to uh, go down. So, yeah, it, it, the, I guess the biggest thing is that uh, you guys are looking at like, because it's not physical, then, you know, how do you derive value to it? Right. And with Ethereum and digital products, you have to have a different way of thinking. Um, you know, we we I think we all can agree that some digital art is done by phenomenal artists, and they are due, you know, the respect regarding like what they charge for it. You know, it shouldn't we shouldn't look at the painting on your wall any different than a beautiful digital masterpiece or digital illustration. Like there's still value in that, but the difference between uh, you know, uh, the physical and the digital is that with with the blockchain and using a digital ledger, they can actually make it a make it non fungible. So only one person can truly own that digital piece. Okay. So how do you see? How does this relate to travel? And what is going to be the future of how this will be used in the future, both NFTs and just blockchain blockchain in general? I know Tripshock has already adopted some of this technology. So where do you see this going? So I see a few things. Uh, one is let's let's start uh, let's just start like in the easiest kind of fundamental way of utilizing NFT. So I think the easiest way to use NFTs is as digital souvenirs. 
So for an OTA, I can't give tangible things when people finish booking. I can give them gift cards, promo codes, stuff like that. But, you know, NFTs allow me to do something, you know, even more intelligent and intuitive. Like I can partner with a local artist and have them design five or six different uh, NFTs of local landscapes, mm-hmm. convert them to digital art, confirm them on the blockchain. So they're, they're official from that artist and reward them for bookings and make it, make it a game. So after they finish making their reservation, they can choose between a handful of different digital collectibles that they can put in their crypto wallet. Um, and every year they can collect more of these, these uh, NFTs and make, it can be fun. Like it's no different than collecting any other type of art, but it's just, it's digital and it's, put on your phone. So, uh, and the cool thing about it is that if they collect those pieces of art, now I have their wallet address and your crypto wallet address is going to be like your, your new digital signature. Like right now, like as web two marketers, we are looking for emails, like emails and IP addresses, like the Holy grail right. for us. Right. Web three it's, it's uh, wallet addresses. Mm-hmm. So I want to start collecting as many wallet addresses as possible that hold um, you know, that digital collectible, because then if I have their wallet, I can send them things. Mm-hmm. I can air, that's where you heard the term airdrop. You can airdrop them things, but mm-hmm. it's really cool. Like if I can get a digital collectible of a local artist and a beautiful landscape, I own the uh, non-commercial IP to that. I can go to a printer and get, you know, that, that uh, NFT printed and I can put on my wall as a print. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, that's the kind of where my head is right now from the basic you know, foundation of like how NFTs can be implemented into my business. Now, then we can take it to the next level and utilize them as like an act for access. So I think the next big use of NFTs will be in events. Mm -hmm. Turning the ticket of an event into an NFT. And then that NFT ticket can be easily transferred and sold in different marketplaces. And the cool thing is, is that when you convert a, you know, a web two ticket into a web three ticket, as long as the marketplace has access to that contract that holds that ticket, it can be listed anywhere. There's no like going to getting an agreement from this OTA or this OTA or this reseller. As long as they have access to that contract, that contract will state what the terms are. And then the marketplace can either you know sell it or not. And there's not mm-hmm. all these different you know, signatures and, and documents and approvals needed or red tape. It's just, that's the beauty of like web three is decentralized. So no one is really controlling anything specifically. So, I mean, even like when I buy a ticket to an event uh, and I want to resell it, it's not easy. Like some, there are some marketplaces for reselling event tickets that you can get on, but it's for the most part, it's still hard to track. Like I still think it's a pain point in our industry where web three and and if it's, if it's non-fungible, you know, they can't duplicate it. So, you know, if it's not on the blockchain, it's not, it's not confirmed on there, then it's not going to be valid. It's interesting. I'm excited to see where it goes and I'm glad that you're at the forefront so that you can keep us filled in on the details. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We may need need another refresher course here through the course of the year, but um. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So my, my advice to anyone that's thinking on getting into it is to get a wallet. You can go to uh, your iPhone app store, download MetaMask. It's an Ethereum wallet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, get Ethereum in that wallet by going to, you can buy in Coinbase. People use Coinbase a lot mm-hmm. and transfer the Coinbase, uh, Ethereum from Coinbase into your MetaMask wallet. You have a true decentralized wallet with, with uh, MetaMask and do something with it. Like buy a cheap NFT just to see how the process works. You can actually buy your own ETH domain. Mm-hmm. And I guess, Alex, this is a good point to talk about. You can actually change. So your wallet address is comprised of like a tons of letters and numbers. You can get that wallet address changed to a um, address of your choosing. So if you wanted alexhusner.eth, you can do that. And I believe that ETH is like the the, the founding or, or the building blocks of, of the future. Like I think Web3 will be heavily utilized with Ethereum and it doesn't cost much to get your domain. If you're, if you're a company and y- you know, you know how it is like with GoDaddy, Alex went through this with, with Counter World, like with yeah. the domain name, yeah. right? Take a couple hundred bucks, get some Ethereum, go to the ENS domains and reserve your name right now. Yeah. Whatever absolutely. names, like I reserved tripshock.eth like months ago, because what's yeah. happening is these people are doing what, what happened you know, 15, 20 years ago, right. they're buying yeah. up every brand name, every destination name. They're buying right. hundreds and hundreds of these, these dot ETH domain names, and they're going to sell them back to you for a mm-hmm. hundred times what they paid. Yeah. Listen to that, everybody. That's a key takeaway from this. And when you <laughs> posted that on LinkedIn, I did it immediately because you're really good at spotting these things that yeah. you need to do is related to domains. And we got go back and forth on all those stories. But um, yeah, I, I think that's definitely great advice for all of our listeners to do. So crazy. I, I still, I'm okay. My head is about to explode here. I have bought Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ethereum plus, or I don't know, there's all these other ones, but so much stuff. I think we could have a whole episode devoted to, to this. And so I think Greg, will have you back in like six months to see if Alex and I have figured it out and can talk um, clearly about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it'd be great to get um, Simon Lehman on a, on a yeah. podcast with Greg here too, because when I mean, he's involved with D travel over in Europe, which is like the largest blockchain company for travel, I believe over mm-hmm. there. So He's got some great information on that, but um, we're, we're interested to watch it and, and see it come more into fruition. But yeah. we appreciate you being here so much today, Greg. And I think this was great to hear more about what your journey has been and, and share that with our audience. And then also, you know, just, see, you know, where it's going in the future and uh, where Trip Shock is going to go to. So we're very thankful for your coming today. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. If our audience wants to contact you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, the easiest way is LinkedIn. Is just search okay. for me, Greg Fisher, and just you know, let's uh, let's connect and, yeah. and chat. Um, I'm not going to give you my Twitter name. You can, but you can go online and figure it out. That's like my <laughs> NFT. So what I do is I separate all my social profiles. So mm-hmm. like Twitter is like my NFT crypto, uh, you know, stuff, and then LinkedIn is my like travel professional stuff. Instagram is like just personal you know, things, you know, things I like. So I had to like, I have to change it all up because what I find is that if I talk about other things, like on like LinkedIn, if I talk too much about like crypto, then people just start like not engaging with it. And if I do, if I talk about non-crypto things on Twitter, then people stop engaging and don't follow. So yeah, but 
that's, that's a good point. That's I mean, that's point. a valid, yeah, that's a valid. Yeah, yeah. But I keep all my personas and, and different, but yeah, LinkedIn yeah. definitely is the best spot. It, it hit me up. I'd love to connect with the, your listeners. Awesome. Well, we'll, we will include a link to your LinkedIn page on the show notes, but thank you again, Greg. Bye everybody. Bye.